Okay, turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to be in the same scripture as we were last week. This is a part two of a, of a, of a sermon entitled Better Together. This is Better Together part two. I'm going to do what I did last week. Um, I'm going to read the passage first and then uh, we can pray and I'll lead you through the second half of this. Um, so let's pray. Jesus, thank you for what you are doing all over the world. And thank you for what you're doing here in our hearts today. Lord, I pray that you would help us withstand this heat in this room. <laughs> and thank you that you're with us even when we're uncomfortable. And um, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us um, from the Bible today. That's really the most important thing for us, Lord. We are asking that you would help us get out of your way and that we could just receive what you have to say to us. We want to know that we had an encounter with God today. So I pray that you would do that through this scripture. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, This is verse 1 of chapter 13. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so... Some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by everyone and the marriage bed should be kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life, and then imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. Um, I want want to hone in on on two things here, or one specific quality of this passage, and that is a very strong, there's a very strong inward feel to this passage, and also a very strong outward feel to this community that he's talking about. Um, Last week we talked at great lengths about the um, incredibly strong inward qualities of this community that he's describing called the church. Um, He described uh, what we're doing here in a church, in other words, fellow people who also experienced the grace of God, he describes us as family, as brothers and sisters. Uh, The word in the Greek is Philadelphia, brotherly love. And he uses, throughout the Bible, the Bible uses this metaphor of a family to describe what what we should be like, what church should be like in light of the cross. We are brothers and sisters. We're family members. Family members are incredibly loyal. And it's talking about an ideal godly family where there's loyalty, where we see everything about each other and yet we don't give up on each other. Um, a, a, a unit, a, a community of people that's so strong um, that we don't have to be afraid that we're going to fall out, that we're going to split, that we're going to divide, that we're going to lose friendships if we say something wrong. Uh, people that know each other so well that we can know what we mean rather than what we say. And I just have to say, that description of church or any kind of community is getting, I think, 
rarer and rarer in our world. So much of the time now, we've got to be so careful with what we say because we can't assume that people will know that we're good-willed people or know that we, what we actually mean. Yeah, there used to be some relational um, buffer, you know. I could say how I felt to my dearest, closest friends, and they would say, well, I know what he means. He's just venting, or whatever it is, right? But now, there's not, there's not uh, as much reserves in the social bank accounts in society to be able to, to say those things. We've got to be super, super careful. And in some ways, we should be, of course. We should be. But relationally, a church is, a, is, is to be a place where we love each other, even to the point where if we disagree with each other, there's no threat of a loss of relationship. We're, we're close. Um, and we all want friendships like that. Isn't that all what we long for, really? To belong to, a, 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 to, belong to someone like that, to belong to a group like that. Um, as Dave and Ivan said, we used to work with young people all the time. And one of the, one of the biggest, well, I would say, maybe universally, what a young person thinks about when they get married is, I'm going to find someone who loves me just the way I am. Which is fiction and fantasy. We all know that. But that is what we long for in our hearts. We long to be known, listen, fully known, and yet... A relationship that's robust enough and gracious enough that it can, it can hold that humanity, right? It can, it can handle the bad breath. It can see what we're like when we're not in our best moment, and it can hold us. What we're actually, what the Bible would say is what we're actually longing for is a relationship with God. We like to put that onto other people and other communities, but we want a relationship with God. God is the only relationship that can, that he sees you to the bottom, and yet he loves you to the sky. But that, is, that relationship is manifest, not individually, but in a group, in a community of other people that have experienced that same love of God. That's what a family is. That's what a church is. And for that, we are better together. We're better together. I cannot know the love of God as much as I would if you, weren't, uh, if you were here. I, can, I will not know the love of God as much as I would um, corporately rather than being alone on my own. I wouldn't know the love of God if it wasn't for you, if it wasn't for your perspective. I would know, sure, some parts of it. And this, this is what's, what's challenging for us reading this part of the Bible, or really any part of the Bible. So, we read so much of this through a individualistic lens because we live in a culture of, uh, that's individualistic. So we read salvation in terms of me and my forgiveness of sins and I get to go to heaven after I die and, and all of it. We can't help it. It's kind of the, it's, it's the air that we're breathing. We can't really help it. But you need to understand the Bible was penned with a very societal focus as we're going to see here. So there's an inward and an outward vibe to this passage um, but I also, I also want you to see how outward this community is because usually when you come across a family or a group or a club that's as tight-knit and loyal to each other as what we're reading about here, you're usually thinking it's a, or you're used to finding a closed community, one that you can't find, one that you're not really allowed into. Um, you know, you, you have to, 
you, maybe you have to stop believing certain things and start believing other things to get into the club or to get into the group. Or you have to stop, stop doing this, that, and the other thing and start doing this, that, and this other thing in order to be inside of this group. Stop behaving in these ways. If you want to be in our loyal group, if you want the, the, what you long for, loyalty and love and someone who knows you and has got your back and all those things, if you want those things, then there's, sometimes there's a sort of initiation process or in some extreme cases, a hazing process, maybe. You know, think of the sorority house or the, some of these gang initiations that you hear about. Once you're in, you're in, but you've you got to go through some stuff to get in. But according to this, that's not the way the Christian community is, is supposed to be. The Christian community is very unique because it has strong inward elements. We're loyal to each other. We got each other's back. We love each other no matter what. We're long-suffering with one another. We have all of those things. We're family. We're brothers and sisters. We share everything. We share resources. We share love. We share expertise, know-how. We're into each other's lives very intimately. There's very strong inward things. But also, this describes a very strong outward stance towards society, towards those who would be on the outside. Look, verse 1 says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. That's the inward part that we've already talked about. And then verse 2 says, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Uh, referring to Genesis 18, we'll get into that in a little bit. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. So the Greek word in verse 1 for brotherly love is what we know. It's the word Philadelphia. It's to show brotherly love to somebody. It's a, it's a, a unique knowing. But the Greek word for, for um, verse 2 for hospitality and strangers is the word philoxena, and it means to show a strong quality of acceptance and investment and interest in complete strangers to you. So verse 1 says, work hard at loving the insiders, loving people, that means loving people of your same beliefs, largely. People that you know, people that you're familiar with, people that you feel safe around. That's what it's talking about in verse 1. And then almost in the same breath, in verse 2, he says to work really hard at loving outsiders. The word philoxena is actually an incredibly strong word in the Greek that means, quote, to have special interest in someone or to be, in to, be, to be intimate or close in association with strangers. That means historically Christianity, it means to open your living space. It means to open your wallet to open your resources to people you would otherwise be suspicious of. People who might hurt you. People who might take advantage of you. This is where we should probably start feeling uncomfortable. It's, it's an uncomfortable thing. It was so radical in the Greco-Roman world, and it's just as radical for us today to talk about these types of things. In fact, um, every time I teach on the subject like this, people usually come up to me and say, come on. I mean, seriously? How radical do you want? I mean, this is kind of crazy. 
And yet, I mean, I, I, you can't get around it. It's, it's a consistent pattern in the New Testament church. In the earliest Christians, they were doing things that were so radical in society that it made society look their way. This is calling us to open up to people that you, you uh, um, have absolutely no certainty that they will ever give anything back to you. It's very natural. It's very natural to give when it's on our terms, isn't it? It's very natural. We might even feel good about that. We like to give sometimes to prove ourselves to ourselves or others. There's selfish motive involved. I want to be a good person, so I'm going to give to this person because I want to feel good about myself. Sometimes we give to be noticed by others, or sometimes we invite somebody in in hopes that we'll be invited in ourselves so that we can get into that group. We'll give if it gives us the chance to maybe get something later or to have access to certain people or to certain groups or to certain circles, whatever it might be. And that's exactly how the Greco-Roman world was. They were all about giving and philanthropy and giving to causes and all those types of things. But it was unheard of to give without being expected anything in in return. That was what was crazy and that's what Christians were doing. Giving was a social function in the Greco-Roman world. It was given, and it was fully out loud and proud that I'm totally giving to you, expecting that you're going to hook me up in other ways too. And Christians started coming because of Jesus giving without any expectation of anything in return. Remember, in the greater context here, we're talking about what... In light of Jesus Christ, the, you know, the, the uh, writer to the Hebrews is saying the old way of worshiping God is gone. It's obsolete. So now, in light of Jesus Christ, how do churches worship? And notice what we said last week. Notice what's not here. There's no mention of preaching here. There's no mention of music. There's no mention of church programs. There's no mention of us standing up with our hands at a certain angle. There's no mention of the loudness of our voices when we sing. There's no mention of any of those things. When the Bible describes how the New Testament church worships God, it is by being loving to our brothers and sisters and being loving recklessly to strangers, to those that may not ever rehabilitate. They may not kick that addiction. They may not get better. They might take advantage of you. I always think, I think the best anecdote I can give, because I always think of it, is um, the famous story, Les Mis. You know the story where um, the prisoner, um, Jean Valjean, he's finally been released from prison. He was put there because he was starving, he took some bread, and he got this incredible prison sentence, and he just became a horribly hard man in prison. His sentence came up, but he was red-lettered. He had every town he went into, he had to show the papers that basically said he's a convict, which means no one was going to hire him, and it was just going to put him right back into the cycle of poverty that it was in before. The only way he could live was to steal and keep stealing. And you remember the story, this priest says he can come in and live with, and stay with them, stay the night with them. He finds him out sleeping in the square and he says, hey, come stay with me. And he feeds him this beautiful meal. Um, and he still, he's, it still has no impact on Jean Valjean. He's just hardened. And he's, you know, trying to mess with them and threaten them and all of these things. But the priest just stays calm. 
And that night, Jean Valjean wakes up and he's, he sees all this expensive silverware in this priest's home. And he steals these silver spoons, these pure silver spoons. He steals them and he makes his, he makes his oh, and I think he decks the priest in the face at one point. I, I think that's true. The priest wakes up and he tries to stop him and he hauls off and smacks a priest punches him in his face, gives him a black eye, and he leaves. The next day, the priest is in the garden, and he's, you know, he's doing his thing, and the police arrest Jean Valjean. They find the silver in his, in his knapsack, and they bring him back to the priest, and, of course, Jean Valjean's lying. I didn't steal anything. These were mine, or whatever it is. And they say, this guy is saying that we know he stayed with you. He's saying that you gave him these, you gave him these spoons, and they're looking at him like, come on, we know he's lying. And to the shock of both the police and Jean Valjean, the, the priest says, oh, he's right. I did give them to him. And, but I, it was so crazy, Jean Valjean, that you forgot the candlesticks that I gave you as well, the golden candlesticks. And he goes and grabs these candlesticks and he puts them in his bag too. And, you know, the police, are, they say, so you're telling me he's... He's telling the truth. He's absolutely telling the truth. So they leave him. Because you don't understand, if he gets busted again, it's even a worse sentence. The police leave. And in the movie version, I don't know if it's in the book or not. It's been a while since I've read it. But um, in the movie version, the priest grabs Jean Valjean, this convict, by by the coattails, pulls him in, and he says, with this silver, I have bought your soul. And I'm setting you free from the power of evil. He redeemed him. And then the, the, it fasts forward to where Jean Valjean becomes this mayor, and he, and he just wants to, he's just giving his life to serve and to love other people. And it all goes back to that moment where that priest, even at great risk to himself, showed love to a stranger that may or may not have taken that, that chance. Uh, seriously or not. And that, now, that's one scene. Now, picture that in mass of the Christian community. This is early Christianity. What set early Christianity apart were not the sermons, even though there were some amazing sermons. We've got Peter in Acts chapter 2, Peter in Acts chapter 3. We've got, uh, you know, Philip and we've, uh, Stephen and Paul and on and on. We've got some greats. Apollos, of course, there was some great preaching. But if you read the documentation, especially extra-biblical documentation of early Christianity... And what you see more often than not is the shocking willingness to give, to share, the generosity, the both inside and outside elements of the community that just was shocking to the Roman world. In other words, this is not describing a community where you have to prove yourself before they'll accept you. Not at all. It's very different. We worship God. This is saying we worship God not just through songs and preaching and those types of things. This verse says we worship God by loving strangers. When you love a stranger, when you show God's grace to a stranger, when you smile at somebody just to let them know I notice you, when you say hello to somebody just to acknowledge their existence and that you're happy that they're breathing... That is, when you're doing it for the Lord, that is, that's how the church worships. 
Now, here's what's great about this. We were talking about this in our home group. You don't have to have a degree to do this. Any person with a pulse that's had any taste of the grace and love of God for you can do this and can spread it. You can walk out. You can do it with your family. You can do it at your work. You can do it on the street. Hello. They might ignore you. It it doesn't matter. It's worship to the Lord, you see. And that is what, you know, we're not talking about we're going to get a jumbotron and call in a big band and have this huge event and we're going to preach the gospel. Those things are fine. But they're exceptions to a normal way of life that is evangelism and that is loving people truly because they need to be loved. You know, it dawned on me one point that Jesus Christ, you want, you want to know why Jesus fed the 5,000? Because they were hungry. It wasn't some gimmick to get them to follow him. It wasn't some ploy to enhance his gathering. His disciples thought so. When the miracle went off and all the 5,000 were eating, they were thinking, ooh, this is good. This is good PR. We're going to make him king, and we're going we're to storm the castle in Jerusalem. Jesus had compassion on them as, as a, like a shepherd that has compassion of, a sheep, of sheep that don't have a shepherd. Because he loved them, period, full stop. Did he want them to follow him? Sure. Did he want them to receive salvation? Sure. But at the end of the day, did it stop him if they would not? He knew every heart in that crowd, the ones that would, the ones that wouldn't. Did he say, give double to that guy? I really want him to follow me. No, he just gave. He just gave, he just gave, he just gave. An open heart. Very different. And notice something in verse 2. It says, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. This is a reference to Genesis chapter 18, when Abraham showed amazing hospitality um, to three people that he thought were strangers. He brought them into his home to refresh them on a hot day like this. And three strangers, they turned out to be three angels. They were like an envoy from God. And then you've got a New Testament example in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. Remember the two men invited in some stranger to eat a meal with them after a long journey and it turned out to be Jesus. One thing that you cannot get away with if you you study the Bible, and I mean from the beginning to the end, one thing that you will notice, if you're paying attention, you will notice it over and over again, the heart of God for outsiders is loud and clear. So much to the point that he identifies with outsiders. That he, beca- he didn't come as an insider. He came as an outsider to get outsiders. He's constantly caring for the poor in the Old Testament, the widow in the Old Testament, the father, the alien. Re- re- if, you, if you know that, hear me say that. He's, const- he's constantly talking about strangers, aliens, widows. Now that you know that, go back and read, and they will, it'll pop at you. It'll just pop. I, I um, heard somebody say that, and I decided to go back and survey it myself. And I ended up thinking to myself, how did I miss this? 
How did I magically read over verse after verse after verse and miss God's heart for the stranger, the outsider, the alien, the widow, over and over and over and over and over again? It took somebody claiming it and me going, I need to, I need to check that out. It's so true. It is his heart. When Jesus came, he was constantly building a community within with his disciples and his followers, discipling these guys, but also he was constantly loving and helping outcasts, constantly. And these are the two branches that become the church. We love each other, and we love others really well. That's who we are. That's how we worship God. So there's an inward and an outward pattern here, but let's keep working through this. Look at verse 3. It says, continue to remember those in prison as if you were, you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Okay, check this out. This is really remarkable, actually. Verse 3 is talking about justice, social justice, because actually the word mistreat there in verse Three um, is the word oppressed. It could be translated oppressed. So find people who are victims. This is, this is what he's telling us to do is worship to the Lord. Find people who are victims and care for them. Take care of them. Bind up their wounds. Give them a cold cup of water when they're thirsty. Those types of things. It's very specific. But verse 4 says, then verse 4 comes along and says, don't have sex outside of marriage. Very specific here. Um, the word adultery means if you're not married, don't have sex with anyone except your spouse. But then he uses the word sexually immorality, which is the word porneia in the Greek, which is kind of a large generic term for any kind of illicit sexual activity, period. Now here's what I want you to see. Um, I want you to see the balance here. I found this quote, the, the epistle of, of um, Diognetus. This is in the, uh, around, AD, they date it to around AD 130. This is what they say about Christians. Listen to this. He says, they share their table with all. He's describing Christians here. They share their table with all, but not their bed with all. They're poor, yet they make many other people rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of all things. That's the description of early Christians in the second century. I'll read it again. They share their table with all, but not their bed with all, which was incredibly radical in the Roman world. They're poor, yet make many rich. They're short of everything, and yet they have plenty of, all, they have plenty of everything. What a unique... This was the unique balance that the Christian community had that turned the world upside down. Christians share their table with everyone, their food, their money, their resources, but their bed they share with no one except their spouse. Now that was and is, even today, so strange because it was the exact opposite back then. In the Roman world, they shared their bed with everyone. It was sexual freedom but they shared their resources with only people who could give back, with almost no one. They were very stingy with their resources. That says something about a society, doesn't it? Doesn't that say something about any society? If, if, if you have sex with someone outside of marriage, and yet you don't want to share your money or your resources with somebody, it says something about, about you, doesn't it? <laughs> it says, I'm not willing to put anyone else's needs or desires above my own. I'm here to take and not to give. That's, that's the loud message, what it says. 
Much like our time, it was, ra- it was a radically selfish culture. But the gospel completely changes the way you see sex and money. I, I want you to see the balance here of these two, um, these two subjects. We think of both of these subjects, like I said earlier, in individualistic terms in our society. When it comes to sex and money in our culture, it's, very, it's all about me. It's all about us. It's, a, it's about you individually. But you need to understand that the Bible's context is almost always societal when bringing up these two subjects. When your heart's been changed by the, by the gospel, in other words, you look at money as a, way, as a tool and a way to build society, to build community, not something to be hoarded. It's all, I mean, especially you read the Gospel of Luke. Read Jesus' teaching on money in Luke, and it is radically not Western. It's not something to be hoarded. It's, something, it's a tool and a power to be used to release God's grace and mercy and refreshment on society and to build it up. You can read about that in the book of Acts. We recently just went through the book of Acts. When the gospel hit Jerusalem at Pentecost and thousands of people became Christians, what's one of the, one thing, what's one of the first things that you saw come out of that community? One of the many things that happened was that people began to use their money to build that community. They didn't consider any of their things their own, but they sold. They sold their property, brought the money so that the community of Christianity could continue to, take, to grow and to be fostered. And it's the same principle with sex in the Bible. The gospel says that sex is to build society and to build a community. So when you read about it that way, when you read these sexual ethics in the Bible, and you read about it from a community or societal standpoint, it's less about bad Christian. You're not pure anymore. It's more about, no, you're doing something to others. When one has sex with someone outside of the, of the commitment of marriage, or when, one, when you selfishly use pornography instead of giving your passion to a committed individual that the Bible calls your spouse, your husband or your wife, you're allowing acid to erode your relationships and ultimately society itself begins to erode. That's one of the greatest lies about pornography. It feels like it's all by yourself and it's just for you. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, it'll be fine. But it is, you see. Because sex was, sex was designed by God to build society, to build family, to build and to connect society together. When we start using it selfishly, it begins to erode and tear down relationships. It's deadly. Sex is not, and I don't mean sex, but when, when sex is for you, and just for you, to take, 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 it begins to tear things apart. Sex is not for you. It's for community. Money is not for you. It's for community. The Bible would say the same about both. See, the gospel makes you unselfish. When you see how unselfish Jesus was to save you, the more you realize it, the more unselfish you become. When you see he gave everything for you. This made Christian community not only radical and different then in ancient times, but it's made it um, the potential for being incredibly radical for us today if we can understand these things. Think of verse 3 and verse 4 again in in terms of, think of how radically relevant this is. Today, the people who are crying out 
Well, today, people in our society are calling out for both social justice, justice, equality, fairness, and sexual freedom. Both. They want verse 3 without, basically, they want verse 3 without verse 4. That's the, the way they prefer it. And the people who are crying out against social freedom with more traditional values, they're weak when it comes to social justice. They have verse 4 without verse 3, you could say. Now, why would that be? And I'll tell you why. Because in our society, we are just as selfish when it comes to these things as the Greco-Roman world. In fact, the way, the way we think of money in Western society is, is not necessarily Christian, but more a form of individualism. Because our society says your money is nobody else's but yours. You've earned it. You have a right to it. No one else does. It's all about you. And what you can do to amass your wealth, your kingdom, your legacy, whatever it might be. And the Bible says no. Not a chance. But then, the way we think about sex in our Western culture is just as individualistic. Because it says that sexuality belongs to you. No one can tell you what to do with your body except for you. How dare anybody put any kind of sexual ethic on me? My sexuality is mine. And the Bible says no to both. Now, what's really interesting about all of this is that there are plenty of case studies today outside of the Western world. Christianity, for example, in Latin America, Africa, Asia, basically those parts of the world that didn't go through an enlighten- the Enlightenment, you know, or basically the Western uh, the, uh, the Western individualistic thought, that Christianity in those places looks very different in those cultures when it comes to sex and money. Extremely different. Um, Dave can tell you that, who's been to Africa. Others can tell you that, that have been to Latin America. When it comes to, they'll say, man, the Christianity there, it's the same and yet it's not. The main beliefs are the same, but their values are much different. The way they process information is much different. And as a result, the Christianity in these parts of the world are remarkably like this text, actually. It's it's verse 3 and verse 4. It's not one or the other. It's not the way it's falling out here. If you go to those Christian places in Africa, Asia, Latin America, they're not for sexual freedom. Did you know that? As a society, they're not for sexual freedom. They understand that sex should be done within a committed, monogamous relationship. Because they know the strength, they know the strength of fam- that the strength of family is essential for society and non-negotiable for human growth. But they're also deeply against the unjust distribution of wealth and resources. They're, they're deeply against that as well. They're, they're all about justice and those types of things. So the question for us is, if we're going to be Christians, are, are we going to let our society squeeze us into, this, into a mold? Or are we going to not be conformed any longer to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds according to this other way? Are we going to let the gospel shape us into a new kind of humanity, a new kind of community that the world is, that shocks the world every time? So this is extremely powerful stuff we're talking about here. You have a community that's both inward and that's both outward in this text. We're seeing a community that is absolutely essential for human flourishing, and we're worshiping God 
in a way that we're integrated into it. There's accountability. It's robust. It's thick. It's got high values. It, it's got a lot of high values. There's accountability between us. At least there ought to be. And yet, it's open to outsiders. It's non-judgmental. It reaches out to strangers. It loves everyone. It's both. And that's the kind of tension that we need to hold as we worship God, according to the Bible. But how do you get a community like this? And the answer to the last, is the last part of this passage. He says this. How do you get a community like this? There's an element here that he, that he talks about. Verse 7, he says, Remember your leaders... Me, people like me, Ivan, Dave, Nathan, Jameson, Debbie, Nicole, leaders. Remember your leaders who speak the word of God to you, it says. Here's the reference to preaching that we're looking for when it comes to a church. But it's not necessarily the Western way but it's preaching nonetheless. Pastors and teachers are to strengthen the community with the word of God. What is the word of God? It's the gospel. You can see it in verse 9. Look at verse 9. It says, Do not be carried away with all kinds of strange teachings. Oh man, you guys, I will spare you, but I mistakenly clicked on a link that somebody gave me that showed all the strange teachings going on in the church, the Christian church, including Calvary Chapels today. And I had to stop watching it. It was so... because it, um, We sometimes think that because we teach verse by verse through a text that we're teaching the Bible. But instead we use it to platform into what we want to say. And all sorts of strange teachings. Ugh, God help me. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. The grace of God. In other words, the gospel is the message that we're saved by grace, not your good moral behavior. That is the thrust, the message, the message of the Christian church. You are saved by free grace, period, not by good Moral behavior. It's not your church attendance or your ceremonies or the kinds of foods you eat or you don't eat or the kinds of clothes you wear or you don't wear or the kinds of drinks you consume or you don't consume. You are, con- you are saved by radical free grace. Period. Full stop. Done. That's why we're here. And that is the dynamic for the creation of of this unique community. That's what makes us unique. At the end of this, we're going to take communion, which is a symbol of not, you know, we don't put communion on top of some high mountain and watch you scale it at the end of the service to see who gets there first. Communion is for anyone who would accept the grace of God, who would take it, who would consume it, In other words, the gospel does something so radical to your heart that it makes you selfless rather than selfish. Therefore, you're not trying to be significant by attaining attaining to something or doing something or wearing something or not drinking something or eating other things. You're saved by grace and that changes everything. Everything flows out of that. Um, And this is why we take it really seriously here at our church, the preaching of the word of God. We, We, I, I... 
I can't tell you how seriously we take it. Because I think it's important. I think it matters. And I think doing it wrongly is devastating. And I can say that as somebody who's done it wrongly. Who in my youth, as I was just learning to study and rightly divide the word of truth, thought I was so confident in doing it right and seeing that I, looking back, seeing that I was doing it wrong and having to apologize to so many. I'll never forget, and it has real ramifications, I'll never forget sitting across the table from a young man who was mentally ill, needed to take medication to live a normal life, but wouldn't because a Bible teacher told him that taking any kind of drug is of the devil. And it allows that person to be demon-possessed. And because that person was so in love with Jesus and didn't want to do anything that would make them fall out of love with Jesus, they refused to take medication. I had to rescue him from the street. I had to call port authority to tell them not to allow him on a plane. I had to take... I, I called the, call, the Bible college that he went to and found the curriculum that had taught him this and I walked him through and I dismantled it in front of him and showed him the biblical stance, a holistic biblical stance. And I remember it dawned on me at that moment, I thought to myself, what I do is really important. What I do is really important. It it hit me. No wonder James says teachers will be held to a stricter judgment. What I do is really important. Jesus talks about this really interesting concept when it comes to the church and, and leadership. He talks about teaching people how to open and shut doors. To, he says the kingdom of, of, of heaven. He says this several times in Matthew. But basically the keys to the kingdom are in your hands. And, I'm, and you're going to teach people how to open and shut certain things. And many it's actually wildly controversial. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I know exactly what it means. But it's actually scholars are still hotly debating what the keys to the kingdom actually even mean. But one guy has a really interesting viewpoint on this. And that is that... Pastors are not the ones that are actually turning, opening doors and shutting them. They're teaching their congregations how to basically go out into the world and release God's power, God's kingdom, or hold it back. You remember the scripture, Jesus goes on to say, for whatever you loose will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. So there's some kind of great authority that Jesus is giving to the church. This is Matthew 18, if you want to look it up. Some kind of great authority that Jesus is giving to the church. And scholars go, what is it? What, what, what is he talking about right there? And one guy, I can't remember his name, or I would tell you, compellingly, compellingly makes an argument that the way I'm teaching you is teaching you how to go out and look at the world and how to release certain things, God's power, and how to hold certain things. For right or for wrong. Let me, let me give you a hypothetical. Let's say we still meet downstairs. Let's say we still meet at the same time as the church that's meeting up here. And let's say someone off the street comes in and goes to our diaconate and says, Diaconate, I, am a, I have an alcohol problem, 
because I've spent all this money on alcohol, I can no longer pay rent. I really need some resources to pay my rent so I can keep my family together, and I really want to kick alcohol. In our diaconate, they get together, they pray about it, and they say, okay, look, um, we're just not in the place right now for various reasons to help you with this. Sorry, the answer is no. We have shut a door. Maybe it's because we don't have the funds. Maybe it's because our church culture isn't isn't according to what I'm teaching. And then let's say that homeless guy walks up the stairs and goes to Calvary Ballard's diaconate, says the same thing. And they say, yeah, we're going to help. We're going to pay your rent for a few months, but we're also going to get you into a program to help you detox from alcohol, and we're going to pay for you and your wife to go through marriage counseling, and we're also going to pay for your kids to get the medical treatment that they need. And that church has opened a door. See? In other words, it doesn't necessarily mean uniformity. Depending on how the pastor teaches the Bible, rightly or not, influences how you look at the world. So whether, let me just say this, whether Matthew 18 is talking about that or not, I think is irrelevant. The principle is still true. It still makes sense. The way I'm teaching you the Bible will influence, it is influencing the way you go out and you watch TV, the way you're taking that in, the way you look at the pandemic, the way you look at the pride parade, the way you look at all the things that are going on, you are deciding in that moment, or at least it's one of the factors that makes you decide if you're going to open resources or shut it down. In other words, church, you very much have your hand on the throttle of the kingdom of God in Seattle. You can throttle it forward, or we can throttle it back, or maybe we can maintain a nice, comfortable speed just for us. And a lot of that has to do with how I am teaching you this book. People ask me, so why are you going to seminary? Because I take it super seriously. Why does it take me 24 hours about to come up with a sermon? It didn't always, but man, after that kid and other people like that, it dawned on me, whole, what I'm doing is really important. And do I nail it every time? No, but I have a true north and I'm trying to get the skills to do it right. We are being guided by this, see. And here in our passage it says, for us to worship the Lord, what it looks like is not the smoke machine, the lights, the concerts and all those types of things. It's loving each other and loving others really well. Let me give you an example We're almost done. Let me give you an example of this in verse 5. He says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God said, Never will I leave you and never will I I forsake you. This is saying that the gospel has the power to so change the heart that things like money no longer have a bearing on on your significance and value. That's my own way of saying it, of what was just said there. The gospel has the power to so change the heart, according to the Bible... That, the things, that things like money that used to have a grip on your value and your significance no longer do. You can interchange money here for anything. Keep yourself free from the love of money, from the love of success, from the love of getting a spouse, from the love of the American dream, from the love of climbing the ladder, from the love of on the new car, the love on whatever it might be, your kids succeeding for you, whatever it might be. Keep yourself free from it and be content with what you have. Why? 
He says, because, it's not abstract, because God has said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. The gospel makes you content. And therefore money becomes just money. A tool to build community. You're not so emotionally attached to it anymore. So you can use it. How does the gospel do that? It's only when the heart truly believes what God has said. What has God said? I've never left you, and I never will. There's a song that says, um, the first verse is a prayer to God. It says, Dear God, I've been trying awful hard to make you proud of me. And I know the harder that I try, oh, the harder it becomes. And this is the line, but I feel like giving up most of the time. Then the next verse is God responding. And he says, dear child, I hope you know I always love you and I'm proud of you. Please believe the thoughts I have for you will never change or fade away. And when you felt like giving up, I never did. (laughs) I never leave. Never leave. In the Greek, I told you this last week, but it's worth repeating. In the Greek, this phrase has five negative participles that makes it really redundant to translate. That's why no translators have done it. But let me give, I'll I'll say it again. In a literal translation, this verse would be God saying, I will never, 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 leave you. And then it does it again. And I will never, ever, 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 ever forsake you. If you came in here feeling insecure about the love of God for you, you need not no longer. I'll never leave you. And unless you know God intimately at the center of your being, even though you may be surrounded by friends and family, you are absolutely alone. And the reason is because everyone else will fail you. Your spouse, your best friends will fail you. Your parents will fail you. They'll all fail you because you're not perfect. And they're not perfect. Or they'll all die before you. They'll leave. We're going through this in our home right now. For some reason, our little seven-year-old is fixated with both of his parents dying. And he said, what will I do, Dad? I'll be all alone. I'll be all myself. But if you do know God at the center of your soul, we tell Noble, you're never alone. Never alone. We sing to him at night. Though I feel alone, I am never alone. Because you are with me. You are with me. Oh my Lord. This book was written to give us strength to hold Fast to never give up because he's he is with you, he is with you, amen.